0: Mark Moyer holds the Harris Chair in History at Hillsdale College. He has also taught at the U.S. Marine Corps University and been a fellow at Joint Special Operations University and Texas A&M. He is the author of Triumph Forsaken, The Vietnam War, 1954-1965. We now have the next volume of that history, Triumph Regained, The Vietnam War, 1965-1968. Which is, uh, I guess, the third part of what's going to be, from what I can tell, one of the major historical studies of that conflict for a long, long time. This is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Moyer.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: All right. We begin this volume in August, 1965. What is the state of the war at at this time? How big? Who's winning? Where, where, where uh, does, does it are people aware at this time of what it's going to become in 1968,
1: 69? Well, they're just starting to understand that. And up until about April of 65, even the administration doesn't really understand what's happening. But what happens at the end of 1964, as soon as Lyndon Johnson wins the election, the North Vietnamese are convinced that he is willing to give up South Vietnam. And he said as much during the election when he talks about not sending American boys. So they prepare this big offensive, which really gets going in the spring of 65. And within a couple months, it's evident that South Vietnam is going to fall without the introduction of American ground troops. And so Lyndon Johnson, at the end of July 65, will announce to the American people that uh, we're entering a new phase of the war with American troop involvement. But what ex- that's going to mean is up in the air. So, the, the last volume, uh, which I wrote, Triumph Forsaken, ends at that point. And this one picks up in August. And this is when you have the first major confrontations between American and North Vietnamese troops and the first big battle, which is Operation Starlight. Yeah.
0: When you go into that battle and throughout the book, You have detailed descriptions of battles, troop movements, actions by Viet Cong commanders and their communications. You have troops wounded and killed. Again, a very individualized on-the-ground stories. It's one of the strengths of of the book. You've got the big picture going on, uh, but also we really get down onto the field of battle itself. I mean, sometimes, you know, minute by minute, uh, as well as hour by hour, what were your primary sources of information? How did you get so much data, so many specific facts?
1: You know, I spent a huge amount of time on this book and the one before it, um, going to find all the primary sources I could, and so that is why one reason why it's taken a long time to get the second one out. But some of some of it is from published sources, um, archives. Probably the most significant source that's new that people haven't looked at are the sources from the North Vietnamese side because they've actually published a good amount on a lot of these engagements, some of its official histories, some of its uh, memoirs. Now, they tend to be full of some communist propaganda, but there are also some very candid descriptions, and so those have been really helpful in understanding the, the full Case of the battles, it's kind of like uh, you know if you were to go to a tennis match and you only could really see one side, you wouldn't really have a, a very good idea of exactly what's going on. And so with this information, we can now see these battles from both sides. Mark, in a way,
0: is it the case that with North Vietnam having prevailed, really, that the North Vietnamese commanders could be more honest? About what was going on in 1969 and and 70, than if they hadn't if they hadn't prevailed.
1: I think that's probably correct because uh, and you know in, in Vietnamese culture you know, saving face is is always in people's minds and so uh, and if you look in fact the South Vietnamese our South Vietnamese allies have have usually not written that much and I think with the North Vietnamese it is the case that they can say, yeah, we had these tough years and here's what happens. But ultimately, we were able to succeed. And so it's kind of okay that we went through these tribulations. So I think that's true.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, you spoke about all these troops coming in in 65, 66, uh, a lot of whom, I guess most of whom, had never seen combat before. And you cite an interesting comment about the first action on fresh soldiers that some of the most boastful men during the training phase boot camp turned out to be rather timid in combat, while some of the most reticent ones, and you use the term reticent, acted like quote tigers in the field what uh, well, what psychologically w- was going on there?
1: You know, I think uh, you know, a lot of people young men I think in general are thinking about what would happen if I was actually put into combat situation and people come in lots of different varieties. But I think, um, this more shows again, something we see in other conflicts, which is that a lot of people who maybe wouldn't have distinguished themselves in a peacetime environment and have these special qualities, uh, one of them being sort of calm, calmness under fire, courage under fire, um, you know, being able to keep your head while other people are, are losing theirs. And also, uh, you know, certain boldness that, um, and, you know, Karl von Clausewitz, you know, 200 years ago talked to some extent about this, about the people who you can really count on in war, oftentimes sort of more calm and deliberative types, uh, not the, the ones who are going around, you know, talking a good game.
0: Yeah. You know, and you, you, you summarize, again, you, you jump from the, the, the on the ground, in the field, specific individuals, some powerful scenes of, of individual death in, in the book. But in your summary of the broad historical conditions in and around Vietnam in the mid-20th century, you speak of the ambition of northern leaders to bring the South into the communist Sphere. Now, Mark, Mar, you know, again, this could be a very naive question from a from a far off observer. Why would the North Vietnamese want South Vietnam when you've got the great big imperial monster backing it? Why not just build Vietnam, North Vietnam, into the workers' paradise? What? Why? Why the? Why, why the? Why the expansionism?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. And there's a split within the communist world on this subject, in fact, a split within the North Vietnamese Communist Party. And you do have, uh, with the ascension of Khrushchev in the 50s in the Soviet Union, this greater emphasis on sort of peaceful coexistence. And we can prevail by showing how great our communist system is, but that you have the Maoists who are more interested in war and confrontation. And, And you have that same debate within North Vietnam, And there are those who are making the case, especially as the U.S. uh, increases its involvement, that we should focus on developing the North for now and not fight this costly war. But they are pushed out by a more fanatical faction led by Juan. And he is really, uh, it's actually one of the most interesting things I didn't know when I got into this is you get to 1968, he launches three successive offensives in what are basically a suicidal fashion. And by most standards, he should have been removed from power for doing this. Um, and yet he's, he manages to keep his uh, power. And he, in fact, around this time, he starts arresting people in the government who are questioning his approach to this. So it's, it's simplistic to think that all the North Vietnamese are just hellbent on this highly destructive war that they don't care at all about the fact that they're losing massive casualties.
0: You speak of an actual strategy on the Vietnamese part of wearing down American will through attrition. Those are the words you use. Uh, what, what, What specifically was that strategy?
1: Well, initially, they think they can do what they did with the French in 1954, which is just keep killing enough americans that eventually the american people get tired and they pack their bags and go home and then the south vietnamese no longer have this big friend on their side uh, but interestingly you know one of the things too one of the myths that i found in writing this book that i hadn't really thought about was there's this notion that the north vietnamese were infinitely patient and therefore we americans were uh, made the big mistake of not realizing that they were so patient. And had we done so, we could have just left the beginning. But the truth is, they actually become very impatient in 1967, because the first two years have gone very poorly for them. And that's one of the big discoveries from these North Vietnamese sources is... Well, one, one thing, Mark, if, I, if I, I'll, I'll interrupt you, the kill ratio
0: is extraordinary. North Viet, you know, Viet Cong death, um, casualties, American casualties... I mean, sometimes it was twenty or thirty to one,
1: right? Yes, you know, the U- U.S. has this great great advantages in terms of air power, um, which enable them to inflict these lopsided defeats one day after another. This also is, you know, makes a bigger impression on the communists than we thought. They really are kind of appalled by how how many uh, casualties they're taking, and uh, for a while now the the, the Commanders in the South actually lie about how many Americans they're killed as an excuse. But by '67, the North Vietnamese leadership figures this out, and so they decide we can't. We've got to do something different to change the game. And so this is where they come up with the idea of the Tet Offensive, and attacking the urban areas, and in the belief that the uh, uh, excuse me, the urban masses in South Vietnam are ripe for rebellion because they've been oppressed by the South Vietnamese and their American imperialists. But it turns out when they go in. The villages, uh, the the um, urban South Vietnamese have no love for the Viet Cong. In fact, help the South Vietnamese government defeat them. Hmm.
0: What was the debate over whether to mine North Vietnam
1: harbors? Why did Johnson refuse? The generals wanted him to, right? Yes, the generals are pushing him throughout this period to do more because the way the war is being fought that there's no way to keep the North from continuing to send men down no matter how many are killed. And so they are pushing for heavier bombing of the North and the mining of North Vietnamese harbors to keep Soviet and Chinese supplies from coming in. And Mm -hmm. the main argument against that uh, comes from Robert McNamara, Secretary of Defense, and he sells this to Johnson, which is that uh, these actions could provoke the Chinese and the North Vietnamese, and then we'd have a bigger war on our hands. And a lot of Johnson's fears go back to the Korean war where the Chinese end up coming in directly. Now, we yeah. know with hindsight, the Chinese had no such intention, but uh, Johnson couldn't be clear of that at the time. Um, and so he, he refrains.
0: Yeah.
1: How you,
0: you actually rate the quality of North Vietnamese leadership in the field, in spite of these casualty rates, you you actually praise their tactical acumen. You say, what 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 were they good at?
1: Well, they're they're good at sort of small unit combat, um, you know, and things that they could rehearse. Uh, you know, they like most countries, you know, with these authoritarian traditions, they're not. Decentralized in the way that uh, our armies are, where we give more latitude to the to the person on the ground. But but in terms of, sort of very basic tactics, they're very good, and they they are um, fierce fighters. And you know, but in terms of Asia, they're oftentimes seen as being among the very best warriors. They're very disciplined. They uh, um, hmm. fight under very difficult conditions, um, but. Certainly at the strategic level, the leadership is very deficient. Um, And Hmm. so they really, in every major engagement, suffer pretty pretty lopsided defeat.
0: What about South Vietnamese leadership and South Vietnamese soldiers? How would you rate them compared to the North Vietnamese?
1: The South Vietnamese... Uh, it's a little complicated because there's three regions of South of Vietnam and the middle one is split between North and South. The, the Northern two regions are more known for their martial prowess than the Southerners. Uh, but there are certainly plenty of good officers on the South Vietnamese side. In fact, a million North Vietnamese flee to the South in 1954 to get away from communism. So there certainly are some good commanders, some who will perform exceptionally well. Now they do have the problem, uh, in, in 1963, the end of 1963, the Kennedy administration sanctions a coup that overthrows South Vietnamese President Noden Diem, and that is a huge uh, catastrophe for, for South Vietnam, first, because they can't find a good replacement, and second, because there's a succession of purges that take place for people who are being seen as loyal to the previous regime, and so that sidelines a lot of the good leadership uh, for much of the 60s. Hmm.
0: You know, one thing that you, you bring up, I, I'd never heard about this before, is heavy drug usage on the North.
1: There is, uh, yeah, there's some evidence that they're, you know, using drugs. Um, never had a lot of good documentation on that, but it does seem to be uh, used. And in terms of uh, you know, reducing fear, um, reducing vulnerability to injury, you know, we've seen more of that, I think, in the 21st century with uh, um, Some of the armies we faced in Iraq and Afghanistan were people using these drugs, but uh, there does seem to have been some use. Let's
0: pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. To what degree was China involved in North Vietnamese policy and, and practice?
1: Now that's a interesting question, and it, it change, evolves greatly over time, but in you know, there's a myth that Ho Chi Minh didn't like the Chinese, and there was this long-standing en, en, enmity, but in fact they are very close throughout the 50s and much of the 60s, and uh, the, the Chinese very much giving support to the North Vietnamese, and, and they have these very close relations. Now things start to break down In 1965. And a lot of that is driven by uh, the intensification of the American War because now that the US starts bombing the North in 1965, the North Vietnamese have to go to the Soviets who have much better anti aircraft weaponry. And the fact that Mm -hmm. now the North Vietnamese are getting all this stuff from the Soviets is very upsetting to the Chinese who by this point are already having their own falling out. And so this will lead to a divergence. Um, You know, there's actually a large number of chinese troops in vietnam in 1965 who were filling the roles of, and freeing up north vietnamese troops but they will uh, as things deteriorate in 1968 the chinese will actually be so upset that they pull their troops out of the north and at that point north vietnam is much more reliant on the soviet union
0: my, my you know my next question was where was the soviet union during the years 1965 to Sixty-eight. They they wanted support. They wanted to support the North Vietnamese.
1: Yeah. So, that, you know, interestingly, they they do not really like this war because they don't want to have to give all this aid, and they're fearful of a larger confrontation with the U.S. And a number of points, they try to take measures to um, promote peace negotiations and actually even to sabotage the North Vietnamese. But they they end up providing large amounts because they are competing with the Chinese to, as to who is the head honcho in the uh, communist movement. And to do that, they have to be seen as being supportive of North Vietnam. Yeah. Very
0: interesting thing early in the book, because we hear so much about the anti-war movement in, back, back home, but you note that in 1965, the American public was strongly in favor of the american american resistance to north vietnam in 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 protecting
1: south vietnam that was solid right yes and one of the another really fascinating thing i learned while doing this is that it's even popular on college campuses until you get to the middle of 1967 and then all of a sudden you have this strong shift on campuses but not in the rest of the country and now having looked at the record it's it's clear that that the big thing that changes campus opinion is that they change the draft rules in the middle of 1967 remove all these exemptions for grad school but except for a divinity school you can still get an exemption there which is helps explain what's happened in our divinity schools but uh, you know as a result of that you have this sudden upsurge it's also when the baby boomers are sort of arriving en on, on masse. And so this, I think, has colored the entire history of Vietnam because you have all these educated boomers who don't want to go to Vietnam. And in order to justify this decision, they have to show that this was, you know, the worst war of all time, even though the facts, I think, don't at all support that.
0: Yeah, yeah. What was LBJ's so-called peace offensive of 1966? And, and actually, how does Poland come on the scene?
1: Yes, well, Johnson throughout this period is, is really desperate to kind of come up with some kind of peace negotiations, although he himself at times is rather skeptical because he knows the North Vietnamese are um, pretty tough guys. But he's under a lot of pressure, especially from the liberal wing of his party, to negotiate. And so he keeps uh, undertaking, putting new restrictions, especially on the bombing of North Vietnam, and he's being told by his liberal friends and also by the Soviets and the Poles who you mentioned that, you know, if, if you just ease off the bombing, it'll be easier for Ho Chi Minh and the North Vietnamese to negotiate. And uh, the U.S. generals, on the other hand, are saying, well, oh, no, no, that's ridiculous. The, the way to get them to negotiate is to hit them harder because that that will give them more incentive. But Johnson does repeatedly undertake these bombing pauses. And in each case, they fail. And, and we now know from North Vietnamese sources that these were basically tricks the North Vietnamese were using, that they would dangle this idea of negotiations to relieve the military pressure. Um, but then, whenever they were actual negotiations, they wouldn't actually give a point on anything, and the nego- negotiations went nowhere.
0: I, Mark, I, I just don't understand because, you know, LBJ's administration, they had the Wiz Kids. These, these are the smartest guys in the room. They were the best and brightest. Who were the whiz kids?
1: Yeah, so the whiz kids are um, these smart intellectuals, a lot of them with advanced degrees, who were brought in by Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. Some of them worked for him when he was an audio executive at Ford. And uh, they are very smart, but they do, you know, I blame them for some of the big mistakes of the war because uh, I think their biggest fault is that they are enamored of social science theory, which, uh, and it comes a lot of it comes from economics, and they look for these uh, abstract models of conflict resolution. And so when the war is, uh, this really gets going in 1964, because uh, the war is going south, and Johnson's trying to figure out how to respond to North Vietnamese provocations, and his generals are saying, well, hit them hard. You know, these generals are... You know, hard-bitten veterans of World War II who understand force, but McNamara and the whiz kids mm-hmm. say, no, no, we should, we should look to the writings of people like Thomas Schelling, an economist, who have these other theories of conflict resolution, and, and which are based on sort of rational actor ideas of human behavior, yeah. which, uh, hmm. you know, may be useful in economics, but turn out to be totally inapplicable and lead to all sorts of bad decisions and mis- un- uh, misunderstandings of the enemy. Oh, but Marga, it works so well in theory. <laughs> yes, the uh, ah. you know, and they they well, part of the the uh, rationale too is is they think the Cuban Missile Crisis supports these theories. But now, now that we know a lot more about the Cuban Missile Crisis, in fact, Cuban Missile Crisis doesn't support these these theories at all. But um, you know that doesn't come out until much later. Yeah, what was the affair that
0: you term quote the return of the Buddhists?
1: So the downfall of President Ziem in 1963 is probably the biggest single mistake of the entire war committed by the U.S. And it comes from Hmm. this Buddhist protest movement, which is embraced by the U.S. media, U.S. Ambassador Henry Cabot Lodge, and uh, David Halberstam, Neil Sheehan, and Stanley Carnot are all siding with the Buddhists in 1963, which helps understand why all three of them wrote these highly inaccurate books Later, but um, the Buddhists kind of subside after that, the overthrow of Xi'an. But they come back in 1966 to cause new trouble, and again claiming they're being oppressed by the government. And uh, now, Ambassador Lodge at this point actually switches his view and says, actually these people are a menace. They're probably in league with the communists, and South Vietnamese government. You can go ahead and put them down if you would like. Uh, and that's what happens ultimately after some prevarication. And this use of force does not lead to a civil war, as as some people are predicting, but instead solidifies the government's rule. And the Buddhists will never pose this sort of mortal threat to the regime again. You're, you actually say the CIA
0: didn't often or often didn't provide very reliable intelligence about what was going on what was was there how, how would you rate their re- the, the intelligence record in in these particular years
1: yeah a very mixed record on the subject of Soviets and Chinese uh, sometimes they waffle between what they're gonna do I think they they do in many cases rightly recognize that China and Soviet Union are not going to get involved if the u.s. steps up pl- the their involvement I think Perhaps the biggest mistake they make is on the question of Cambodia. They're claiming that Cambodia is not serving as a major infiltration route for the North Vietnamese, uh, which then is used to argue against U.S. activities in Cambodia. But when the U.S. finally goes into Cambodia in 1970, they discover that, in fact, the North Vietnamese are doing all sorts of things, and they're shipping supplies through the port of Cianukville, and uh, CIA just comes out of that looking extremely bad. Hmm. You know, back to the journalists,
0: Halberstam, Neil Sheehan, R.W. Apple, another one you mentioned. You know, what was their motivation? I mean, what what was behind their, they seemed determined just to discredit American actions and and personnel. What was the animus? Where did that come from?
1: Well, part of it came from the fact that some of the American officials did not want to give these journalists all the information they were seeking and as uh, we've seen time and again journalists like to offer things to officials and you know offer them that they're going to get favorable coverage if they'll just tell them some secret stuff and a lot of the officials didn't go along with that so that upset them The South Vietnamese government was not very accommodating towards journalists Uh, but also part of it was that they wanted to be uh, known for making history they didn't want to just be observers and So we see, especially with Hal, and Sheehan, they think that by stirring up support for this coup in 1963, that actually things are going to go well. Now, later on, these guys will kind of drift to the anti-war camp when that becomes more fashionable, but they're actually very supportive of the war in 63, but they're claiming that if only we support this coup, it'll go much better. And of course, the exact opposite happens. Things get much worse. And so... At that point, you really see them scrambling to rewrite history to justify this disastrous decision.
0: You know, as as the war, as the casualties are really piling up for the North Vietnamese, and and again, you note loss of battle after battle. But you said that the North Vietnamese enjoyed
1: a steady flow of replacement soldiers. Where did all these new ones come from? They're coming from the north, and and so most of them are coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail through Laos and Cambodia, and the American generals keep urging Johnson to go in to cut the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and we now know from post-war revelations, in fact, this would have been a uh, strategic masterstroke, but Johnson is listening too much to McNamara, who says, you know, A, is claiming the Ho Chi Minh Trail's not as important, it really is, and that uh, if we go in there, we're going to needlessly... Provoke the Soviets and the Chinese. Uh,
0: Mark, last question as as we wrap up. Uh, where does your what is the state of the war at the end of this volume?
1: That's another area where I really diverge from the conventional wisdom because we've been led to believe that the country's demoralized after the Tet Offensive. Johnson's kind of giving up, but in fact, the U.S. does not downgrade its military. Ep- activity at all over the course of 1968. And Flack delivers some devastating defeats to North Vietnamese. And there is, she's very strong public support still for the war at this time, which is runs contrary to what we think. There's only, you know, less than 20% of Americans think the U.S. should just get out of Vietnam at the end of the year. And and at the same time, they've just elected President Nixon, who's known as a a hardline anti-communist. So uh, from the view of South Vietnam, things actually look Quite favorable at the end of nineteen sixty-eight. Hmm. All right. Uh, when's that next volume out? Come on. Well, I'm working. I've got to, you know starting a new job at Hillsdale College, and uh, that's uh, uh, keeping me busy. So I uh, said I put a great amount of research into these, so uh, I can't give you a firm date, but I can assure <laughs> you, I'm, I'm working hard on uh, the next volume now. Uh, This volume is
0: entitled Triumph Regained, the Vietnam War, 1965-1968. Mark Moyer, Professor Moyer, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 332 2930